Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Rossafari podcast and our weekly Zoo News episode. Uh, as you can imagine from the term Zoo News, this is an episode where we're going to share news about zoos and also aquariums and conservation organizations and, you know, stuff that's going on in the animal world. Uh, but that would have been too long of a title, so we went with Zoo News, which is shorter. So anyway, um, yeah, well, uh, this is this is now my third week of of doing episodes since um, Benjamin and Benjamini and I started living together. For those of you who aren't caught up, uh, Benjamin is a spider that is living in my room with me at my current gig housing, and Benjamini is a smaller spider that uh, appeared shortly after Benjamin. And um, Benjamini is thriving, y'all. I mean, as far as I can tell, currently wiggling in his web directly above me. Uh, but Benjamin has been missing for the last couple of days. Now, I don't want y'all to worry. Benjamin has gone missing for multiple days before. Uh, he, he tends to hide, I think, and then randomly show up. So I'm not too worried that I, I, I've lost my friend Benjamin. But... um. Okay, I'm a little worried that I've lost my friend Benjamin, but probably not. The last time he did this, he he was gone for three days, and then as I started recording uh, Zoo News last week, I looked up and he was directly above my head and was like, "What's up, dude?" didn't didn't actually say "What's up, dude?" He's a, he's a spider, but uh, you know, I I could read his intention, uh, and it was very much a "What's up, dude?" attitude. So yeah, um, so I'm I'm hoping that Benjamin makes another appearance and uh is is visible when i'm going to leave cuz I, I really do want to take take benjamin and benjamini uh back to to good lives cuz i feel like whoever lives here next or the cleaning crew will um not treat them with the love and respect that i do so uh yeah but um that's that's the update on benjamin and benjamini and i know that y'all have been craving more of that and yeah Question, should I make a Benjamin and Benjamini Rossafari shirt? Maybe with the drawing of, of the spiders that I did that looks like it was drawn by a six-year-old because that's how I draw? Because, yeah, that, that already exists. I mean, the shirt doesn't, but I, I did the drawing. So, you know, if you guys are interested in a Benjamin and Benjamini Rossafari limited edition shirt, let me know. Um, could be fun. Anyway, um, this is the last week of... Uh, my show, Great Balls of Fire, in Lancaster, and it's going well. Uh, I'll be heading off to Delaware for a quick gig later uh, next week, and uh, I'm planning on hitting up a couple of facilities, including the National Aquarium and the um, the National Zoo uh, in the interim. So I'm looking forward to all of that. And if any of you happen to be in the Baltimore or D.C. area, let me know. Maybe maybe we'll make friends in, in the real non-podsphere kind of world. Unless I think you're weird or creepy and then I'll make an excuse. <clears throat> Kidding? 
Maybe? Probably. Anyway, um, yeah. So, Rasafari Zoo News is not just the coolest podcast about zoo news around, but is also crowdsourced. So if you are a person who sees things that could pertain to this type of episode, then tag me in them on socials at Rossafari, TikTok at Rossafari Pod, uh, or email them to me, Pod at gmail.com. And then you'll get to hear your name at the end of the episode. So... Everybody wins. All right, here's an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com studios. All right. And with all of that, uh, I think it's time. Is it time? It's time. All right. Let's get to it. Zoo news. Zoo news. It's the news that's about zoos. Zoo news. Whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, y'all. So we're going to start off with a sad one this week. Um, this last week, 13-year-old Asian elephant Becco at the Columbus Zoo passed away from EEHV. Uh, EEHV, which stands for Elephant Endotheliotropic Herpes Virus, uh, is a life-threatening virus affecting elephants living in the wild and in sanctuaries and zoos worldwide. Um, it's... It's a disease that has taken down a lot of elephants lately uh, in the captive population. And um, like I said, we know it's happening in, in the wild and everything uh, as well. And right now there's there's just no cure. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, sometimes these things, they just come up so fast and and they're so ridiculously devastating. I believe it was on June 17th that the uh, zoo announced that uh, Becco was not feeling well, and they actually had to cancel a birthday party for another elephant, Frankie, uh, because of it. And they didn't announce that it was EEHV at the time, but I was really concerned that it was. And sure enough, one day later... On Saturday, June 18th at 2.17 p.m., the zoo announced that Becco passed away. Now, EEHV is a very well-known threat to elephants, especially to younger elephants. Um, and so the Columbus Zoo does proactively use a bunch of different detection methods and protocols to test elephants in the herd every single week. Uh Prior to the confirmed diagnosis, uh, which was on June 16th, the day before they announced it, all of Becco's blood work was totally normal, no issues, and then, boom, gone, just like that. Um, you know, they're not entirely sure exactly how all of this spreads, 
but there are no signs of EEHV in the other six members of the elephant herd at this time. And we're going to really, really, really hope that that remains the case because it's not been uncommon to hear about uh, zoos losing two or three elephants when this hits their herd. And with a just one-year-old elephant named Frankie there, there is a lot of concern because obviously Frankie is young. So uh, fingers, toes, and all other things crossed that this is a one-and-done instance of EEHV at the Columbus Zoo. But if I do have some happy information about all of this, I've said this before, but every elephant that dies of EEHV is studied and that information is put into the broader world of people trying to prevent this disease. And right now there is actually a vaccine trial for EEHV that has just started and scientists are hopeful that this might be the one. The vaccine trial is being done between the University of Surrey and the Chester Zoo, which has lost seven elephant calves to the disease. The current mortality rate of EEHV is up to 85%, which is just ridiculous. In fact, it has been calculated that EEHV is the cause of over 50% of all elephant deaths in captivity. Now, that's an interesting statistic for a bunch of reasons, but one of the big ones is that when we figure out life expectancy for animals in the wild, we're not able to do full population studies, so they they kind of just look at what they can do and, and figure out the average, you know, and they, they don't always account for things like diseases. They, they base it off of the older elephants, in this case, that they see. So... One of the things that has often bugged me, you know, I'm very much not anti-captivity, obviously, with this podcast, but there are certain animals that every once in a while kind of make me go, hmm, I don't know, a little concerned. And elephants have been one of those, not because of the reasons other, you know, anti-captivity people say, but just because I know that the life expectancy of elephants is lower in captivity than it is in the wild. And often that is very much not the case with other animals. But if half of all of the elephants that die in captivity are dying from EEHV, that's going to seriously affect those numbers. And again, it's a disease that, you know, happens in sanctuaries, happens in the wild, happens in captivity. It is not a zoo-based disease. So that makes me feel a lot better about that number. I'd actually be really curious to see a study, and I couldn't find one. I did some research here. Um, on the life expectancy of elephants in zoos, not accounting for EEHV victims. Uh, you know, I don't know what that would be, but clearly it would be much higher than the the life expectancy of, you know, elephants when half of them die when they're young because of a disease. But yeah, so anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. I apologize for that, but I think it's really interesting. Um, and yeah, right now there is the chance that this vaccine will work out. And there's, there's not a whole lot of information about it yet. They're doing the test. It looks positive. That's all I've got. But let's, let's cross our fingers, toes, and trunks that this works out and um, that, you know, we can finally stop reporting stories like losing Becco. 
Okay, so that was a sad story out of Columbus. But I'm now going to share a happy story out of Columbus. This is a story about Lance. Who's Lance, you ask? Well, Lance is a giraffe at the Columbus Zoo. And more importantly, Lance is a plasma donor for newborn giraffes. Lance has been trained to stay calm and happy while the veterinary staff at the zoo pull plasma and blood directly out of his neck, kind of just like we do with our arms. And um, it takes about 12 minutes and gives roughly a liter of blood and plasma. Now, this can be done once a month, and this is used to protect baby giraffes against infection when those babies can't nurse so they don't get the colostrum that gives them their natural like immune system buildup. In fact, this program has been going for a little while. And since 2017, giraffes from the Columbus Zoo have helped save the lives of 12 giraffes and one okapi at 11 other zoos in the United States. Now that is an animal that we can all look up to. Get it? Because giraffes are tall. Okay, so this next story is going to feature me being critical of a zoo that I love, but I gotta be real here, y'all. Okay, so for those of you who don't know this, the Smithsonian's National Zoo in Washington, D.C. is a free zoo, which is awesome. All of the Smithsonian museums are free, which, again is awesome. And, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, so we're talking a while ago here, I mentioned that the National Zoo had split from Fonz, or Friends of the National Zoo, F-O-N-Z, who ran their membership programs and and all kinds of other stuff. And it was going to be interesting to see what happened with all of that. And then the zoo stayed super closed, even when other ones opened up during the pandemic. And they're just now rolling out their new membership programs. And y'all, they're making a huge mistake. This isn't just my opinion. I've seen a lot of complaining from people online about this, okay? But so here's the deal. Why, you may be asking, would you choose to become the member of a zoo with free admission? Because even though we all love supporting zoos, let's be honest, we become members so we don't have to pay every time we go. And this is a free zoo. Well, the reason that I have been a member of the National Zoo in the past and actually was planning to become that again when I go to visit here soon was because they gave you free parking if you were a member. See, while zoos often charge a decent bit of extra money to park there, uh, the Smithsonian charges $30. Now, that's per car, not per person. So sure, if a family of four are coming or whatever, 30 bucks for a day at the zoo isn't too bad. But a lot of times I go alone or with one other person, and $30 to park is a lot of money, especially when there is free parking all around if you're willing to walk a little bit uh, and if you're lucky enough to find a spot. I cannot tell you how many times I have circled that area of Washington, D.C. for a half hour to find a spot. Uh, So anyway, $30 to park. And uh, their new memberships have kind of taken that away. So the standard membership is $74 for the year for one person, and you only get discounts on retail and food. They're not big discounts, so to make that worth your while, you would have to spend eh, roughly $740 in food and retail in one year 
at the zoo. Now, a premier membership, $92, gets two people into the zoo, gets unlimited rides and those discounts. So if you're into rides and stuff, all right, all right. And two parking passes for the year. They expect their members to pay $30 to park after visiting twice. Y'all, I'm a member of multiple zoos near where I live, and there are weeks when I visit five times. That's ridiculous, okay? And as the levels go up, you get one more parking pass with each one until you finally hit unlimited free parking. That only costs $1,000 a year. $1,000. You actually get an exclusive tour of the zoo and VIP experience invitations with your membership at that point. $1,000 for unlimited free parking. They have turned off so many people with this. And the sad part is, uh, if you renewed your membership and you didn't go and really read everything and you just thought like, oh, okay, cool, I'll renew and go park for free. Yeah, they didn't exactly make a big deal about it. I'm not saying they hit it, but they didn't make a big deal about the change either. And I know multiple people who have become members at their old level that have now found out that they don't get to park at the zoo for free or that they get to do that like twice in the year. And that is it. This is really, really unfortunate, and honestly, it just comes across as kind of money-grubbing. I mean, y'all, I gotta be honest with you, I have never seen a zoo membership page that has memberships at $10,000 per year before uh, for three cards, not even for, like, you know, a lot of people. Three. Three cards. Ten grand. So um, I love the Smithsonian. I love the National Zoo. I love that it's a free zoo. I love many of the keepers there. I certainly love many of the animals there. But this is not really okay. And this, I think, is is burning a lot of bridges in the, the zoo community in the D.C. area. So I really hope that they find a, a way to make this a little more palatable to members by giving everybody who's a member free parking, because that's literally the same as free admission at every other zoo, which is what every other zoo membership is. Come on, guys, get it together. However, to prove that I'm not just annoyed at the National Zoo, I still think they are absolutely wonderful. I'm going to share this story as well. Uh, for the first time ever, a whooping crane, one of the most endangered species of crane in the world, has hatched at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute. So the story is that there was... Um, a crane egg that was found abandoned in the wild in a nest in Wisconsin by the International Crane Foundation. So once that egg was found, it was taken to the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, and uh, it was given to a 16-year-old female crane, Taya, and a 25-year-old male crane, Goliath, who served as surrogate parents. They did well, and the colt, which is apparently what a baby crane is called, uh, I would have gone with cranet, but whatever, the colt is doing very well, the parents are very attentive to its needs, and seem to be treating it as their own. So, just an awesome story out of the National Zoo, who should definitely change their membership policies. But seriously, awesome story. Okay, let's move on to happier things. Like, oh, I don't know, turtles? I like turtles. 
I like turtles. That that uh, you know, famous meme is is me basically me as a child, except as an adult. Anyway, um, ten northwestern pond turtles have been taken to the Oregon Zoo Conservation Lab to start a head starting process, so that they will have a chance to grow for a year in captivity and then be released into the wild when they are large enough to not get eaten by everything. So here's something interesting. I, I've talked about Head Start programs before and how much I love them, but in this case, I thought this was fascinating. Um, heat lamps and lots of food are used to make sure that the turtles experience summer year round. And they also don't have to, you know, starve and fight for food and, and compete with other turtles. So they tend to get released right around one year old. It's actually based on their size. When they're a little more than two ounces, they're returned and they are monitored for safety. Um, but because of this, when they go out into the wild at around a year old, they are the size of a three-year-old turtle. That's incredible that they can grow that much when they don't have the hardships of turtle life stopping them. Like, again, it's one thing to think like, oh, you know, turtles maybe die a lot because they're small. But even the ones that live, it takes them longer to grow because they can't get the resources necessary. And this Head Start program helps overcome that. So that is awesome. And yay, Oregon Zoo. And speaking of turtles and yay zoos, the Toronto Zoo announced that they released 56 endangered Blandings turtles into Rogue Park last week, um, which is part of a, a Head Start program again, and it's it's led by the Parks Department of Canada and the Toronto Zoo. So yeah, these Head Start programs are just a great example of ways that zoos are doing awesome things to help conserve turtles. And I love these stories every time I report on them. On a side note, that was just kind of funny. Um, on World Giraffe Day, the Toronto Zoo posted a thing and it said, have you ever wondered what makes a giraffe so cool? Join us on World Giraffe Day as we get up close and personal with the tallest family at the Toronto Zoo. And the picture was a turtle don't know if that was just a mistake or well i mean yes obviously it was a mistake but i just i thought that was really funny that they're talking about giraffes and called it a turtle you'd have to be a real dummy to call an animal by a completely wrong name like that by the way if you haven't looked at my rossafari posts from this week uh, i took miles to the cape may county zoo this week pointed directly at a baby zebra and said hey buddy check out the baby giraffe and like I host this podcast, y'all, so I'm not actually busting Toronto's chops too badly. We all do these things from time to time. The Brookfield Zoo recently announced the hatching of a short-beaked echidna puggle, which is what a baby echidna is called. And uh, it's the first time this has happened in the zoo's history. And um, echidnas are pretty darn rare uh, in the United States and are also really unique as they are one of only two egg-laying mammal species, known as monotremes. The duck-billed platypus is the other species, of course. And uh, yeah, this is just really exciting news. Puggles are adorable. And if you don't know what an echidna is, you need to Google that crap right now because you're going to fall in love, y'all. All right. And then two more quick stories out of Zoo News. 
First of all, the Fresno Chafee Zoo uh, is yet the latest to have to release a statement saying that they're doing something for pride and that the people complaining about it can suck it. Those are my words, not theirs. Uh, They wrote a very nice thing, pointing out that they were having a family pride night, and it's one of many inclusive programs that welcomes and celebrates the communities and cultures of their region. And uh, they... They put out a really great statement. I'm not going to read it all, but you get the idea. People are being idiots, and they said no and just did the thing anyway, and good for them. Yay, Fresno Chafee Zoo. And last, but certainly not least, in Zoo News this week, uh, Zoe and I went to see Jurassic World Dominion recently, and um, I have thoughts. It's it's a horrible movie, but a wonderful Jurassic Park movie. And if you've seen it, you probably know what I mean. And if you haven't, that sounds weird. But um, I don't think I've ever thought that a movie was bad, but also just enjoyed the heck out of it as much as I have with Jurassic World Dominion. Highly recommend it. I want to see it again. Anyway, that's not actually the zoo news story. Jurassic uh, World, it turns out, is a fictional zoo. Um Kind of disappointed in that when I found it out last week, but whatever. Anyway, the point is that one of the earlier scenes in the movie shows a cheetah running, and that cheetah looked really familiar to me. Turns out it is Bravo. Bravo was uh, one of the cheetahs uh, that did the cheetah encounter at the Cincinnati Zoo until he retired along with um, his brother Chance. And um, yeah, no longer with us. The footage was actually recorded by National Geographic back in 2012. Uh, very prescient of them to decide to record something for Jurassic World. Oh, oh, they were using it for their own stuff. And then they gave it to the filmmakers. That that makes more sense. But uh, all joking aside, that was a Cincy Zoo cheetah in that great movie. And while I was still more excited to see Jeff Goldblum than uh, the cheetah, it was it was good to see an old friend on screen. And now... Conservation news. All right, so we're going to start the conservation news this week with some sad news out of New Zealand, where hundreds of dead little blue penguins are washing up on the beaches. Um, This has been really hard for the locals in New Zealand who are finding these birds, and uh, it's it's not a shock. But um, why is this happening? Yeah, climate change patterns. The birds have been tested for all kinds of things, including diseases and biotoxins, but they appear to have died from starvation. Interestingly enough, it's actually not unusual for seabirds to die off in large numbers because of things like severe weather and stuff. But um, mass deaths amongst blue penguins uh, used to take place once a decade on average, and now they seem to be taking place once every other year, and they also seem to be larger in numbers than many of the previous ones. One of the more interesting facts from the story that I found is that um, it's not entirely possible to measure the exact impact of climate change on little blue penguins, uh, but there are observable patterns that show that it is climate change. And one of those that I found interesting is that the little blue penguins at the southern end of New Zealand, which has not been subject to the same sea temperature changes as northern New Zealand, appear to be doing significantly better, while the populations in the north are the ones that are suffering and struggling and starving. 
Um, and it is believed by these scientists that more die-offs can be expected with more frequent occurrences of warmer sea temperatures around the New Zealand coast. So, uh, yeah, this is this is a really big issue. And it's also a big issue because if this is happening with those penguins, it could be a canary in the coal mine type situation where it's saying, hey, this is happening uh, above ground because they're not getting the food that they need out of the sea. And so likely the whole food chain under the water is going to suffer and have mass die-offs and have big issues. So uh, this is just a really sad story. And uh, and I, I hope that some of our penguin conservation friends are coming up with plans to, to do something to make it better. Okay, so in happier news, last week I reported on the fact that for the first time in a really long time, Kemp's Ridley sea turtles were nesting on Galveston Island in Texas. Well, now there is a um, single nest right now of Kemp's Ridley sea turtles, our most endangered sea turtles, on Magnolia Beach in Texas. And that is the first time in history that a Kemp's Ridley has nested there. That is huge. As a matter of fact, not only is that the first time that a Kemp's Ridley has nested there, it's actually the first time that a sea turtle has ever nested on this beach. Now, normally, um, you know, sea turtles return to the same place that they were born, so I'm not quite sure why that happened, but the nesting happened, and the sea turtles actually uh, hatched. Um, it looks like 40 to 50 sea turtles uh, actually made it to the water from the nest, so that's really exciting. Um, interesting and curious to see why that happened. Um, there is a lot of conservation work being done for Kemp's Ridley's right now, so maybe this is a sign that that is working. Or maybe it's a sign that things are so screwed up in the ocean that uh, the turtle got really lost and just had to drop its egg somewhere. I don't know. We don't know. Nobody knows. But uh, I'm pretty darn excited about anything positive for Kemp's Ridley's. So we're going we're gonna to hope that this is that and that uh, these turtles will go off and live and come back and, uh, you know, start making more and more nests uh, on Magnolia Beach in Texas. And speaking of turtles, though not of the sea variety, um, there's a really cool program that's been happening for the last 25 years, and they just did their latest release, which is why it got some press. Uh, it's run through the Wetlands Institute in New Jersey uh, in conjunction with Stockton University and the Stone Harbor Schools. And basically what they do is they take turtles that had been raised from eggs retrieved from the smashed bodies of mothers killed on roads and they take them to schools and they see if they hatch. And if so, they let them raise them and head start them and then release the turtles back out into the wild. That is such an awesome program, even though it makes me really sad that there are so many stinking mother turtles that get smashed crossing roads. Everybody put your damn phones down and look for turtles, please. And also, like, don't kill other humans and stuff, but mostly the turtles. But yeah, um, I just found that that fascinating. And then these students, and I mean, we're talking young students. It's it's really, let's be honest, the teachers are the one that deserve all the credit here, but the students are, are putting in the work and doing the thing too. It's 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 very cool. And um, they they just help raise these turtles and it's a great biology class initiative and it's just it just makes me happy. So nice work to all involved. Let's save all the turtles. 
All right. So these next two stories are really cool because they involve finding populations of animals that we didn't know existed. And they're populations that need all the help they can get. So this is pretty cool. Uh, let's start off by talking about orcas. The largest orca pod ever caught on camera has been recently captured on, on camera uh, off the coast of Norway. Uh, hundreds of killer whales gathering together off the coast of Norway um, with, I think they said, yeah, at least 300 individuals. And uh, no one knew they were there. There was uh, an expedition boat out and they caught some footage of it, but nobody knew this was a thing. Um, generally, the uh, orcas tend to stay in really small groups. Um, and nobody was able to figure out why they were all together, especially when they realized that it was not one family. Sometimes larger groups will stay together if it's all one family, but nope. And, uh, it is also not considered to be mating season right now. Uh, they do tend to, you know, gather more frequently in mating season, but it, it's not that. So, um, the way that this was discovered was that there were so many marine birds that were fleeing, um, the area that an expedition decided to go out to see what was going on, and they found just all the orcas. Now, why were they there? Not entirely sure, but there is a belief that it is because there was a fishing fleet that was nearby, and the thought was that with the orcas being so hungry, they all came to the same area to try to find the fish that the fishing fleet were fishing. That's a lot of fishes. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't even really know. I couldn't find a source that actually said who it was that thought that. It was just presented as something that, you know, people thought. So I don't know. That sounds a little fishy to me. <laughs> but um, it almost sounds a little too like anthropomorphic. But we do know that orcas are smart, so maybe. But anyway, yeah, there's just this this huge gathering of orcas that nobody ever suspected was a thing, and it, it happened. So, cool. And going along with that story, a secret population of polar bears has been discovered in Greenland uh, in a habitat where it seems that there shouldn't be able to be a population of polar bears, because for most of the year, this habitat lacks the floating platforms of sea ice that polar bears use to hunt. Um, so yeah, they have been there. Apparently, it is believed that the population has been there for hundreds of years and just not really been noticed. They live on the steep slopes around fjords in Norway, um, which are long and narrow coastal inlets uh, where glaciers meet the ocean, and they hunt on a patchwork of glacial ice that breaks up in these inlets. So this is really interesting because it definitely suggests that at least some polar bears may be able to adapt to sea ice disappearing as climate change worsens. So that's good news. Um, but, you know, there's not that much glacial ice out there that would work in this way. So it's not like all polar bears can just head to Norway on the latest flight and start living amongst the fjords. Um, so, yeah, it's still really cool that, that this is a, a population that we didn't really think could be there. And they seem to be doing well. They seem healthy. They seem to be eating, which is not something we can say about all of the known polar bear populations. So... We'll take it. And we're going to end the conservation news this week with a story that is just a shame. Um, but it it's important because it points out 
the reminder to people that, you know, we, uh, most of my listeners are in America and, and most of the rest are in places where there's not a lot of human animal conflict. Or if there is, it's because you scream because there's a scary spider that's not Benjamin in your room or Benjamin. Um, but there is currently a leopard on a, a killing spree in northern India that has claimed the life of three human children in 48 hours. And at this point, there is a 50-person team that is hunting for the leopard, and it is believed that if uh, the leopard is not caught, the attacks will likely continue. The team that is hunting for the leopard is going to try to tranquilize and capture it, but do have permission from the government to kill the leopard if necessary to stop this killing spree. And while these numbers are particularly bad for this leopard, this is not the only leopard in the area that has killed people recently. Northern India has seen increasing development in recent decades, which has led to more clashes between humans and wildlife. In the last 15 years, 230 people have been killed by leopards, while more than 2,800 have been injured by leopards. So, like, this is a really big deal. And this is just a friendly reminder that, you know... Those of us not near them can say, hey, we need to save leopards, and, and we do, but there are steps that need to be taken to prevent this kind of thing, and it's pretty hard to, to look a parent who lost a child in the face and be like, well, we, we need to save that leopard that, you know, killed your human child. Now, some people will disagree. There are plenty of people who put the lives of animals on the same plane as humans, um, and that's cool, and I get it. I truly, I, I hear both sides of it, but y'all know that's not the majority, and the majority of people will definitely think this leopard needs to go. And that is the kind of fight that conservationists are facing every day when it comes to certain animals like leopards. It's time for other news. It's time for other news. Hey, now, right now, right now, it's time. It's time for other news. Hey, it's a segue to the podcast other news. All right, let's talk about a big controversy that's happening right now in the dairy industry. The quote, largest undercover dairy investigation in history has taken place at Fair Oaks Farm and Dairy in Indiana, which produces products for Fairlife. Uh, you may have seen they're a lactose-free actual cow milk type of company uh, that is owned by Coca-Cola. Um, there is some really, really graphic footage out there, y'all. If, if you want to look into this, it ain't pretty. Um, if, and I'm going to say if this is true and this is not something that was, um, faked, then, uh, this is a real problem and there need to be, uh, I just don't like seeing cows get abused. Really? That's, I mean, things need to happen. However, the flip of this is that the undercover investigators were from Animal Recovery Mission, known as ARM or ARM, and um, ARM is a, you know, quote, animal rights activist group who has been known to do some really over-the-top things. They are radicalists, radicalized, radi they're, they're radicals, they are radicals, and... Um, 
you know, they have a two out of five star rating on Charity Navigator and they have been accused of actually being the people in the videos who are abusing the cows. And I, I just don't know. I wish animal rights groups wouldn't be so over the top in their practices all the time because on the surface, this looks horrible and this looks like something where, you know, fair life needs to get their stuff together or we should be boycotting and we should be reaching out to Coca-Cola and we should be doing all of these things. But we all know about Blackfish. We all know that animal rights groups will lie and fake stuff and use fake footage to try to get animals set free. And I just don't have the information yet on whether or not this is a true investigation or whether Arm is, you know, lying. <laughs> just going to call it that. Truly don't know yet. So I'm going to keep an eye on everything and I want you all to do the same too. And if you see anything particularly interesting about this, please send it to me uh, because I'll tell you right now, um, Miles drinks Fairlife because he doesn't always do well with too much lactose. So, uh, yeah, I need to to get that changed up if this is an issue. But again, I don't want to change something in his life just because seeing something from a group that I don't trust. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but also sometimes my enemy is just my enemy. I don't know. Anyway, it's it's a very interesting situation that is currently developing and still being figured out, and uh, we should all be keeping an eye on it. But on a happier note, it has recently been discovered by scientists that male mice are afraid of bananas. Yep, you heard that right. Bananas. Male mice are the anti-minions. Okay, so why are male mice afraid of bananas? Well, scientists believe that they've watched a lot of old cartoons where you slip on banana peels and no, no, nope, 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 I'm lying. <laughs> um, the truth is that there is a chemical that is found in uh pregnant and nursing female mice that they send off to defend their young that basically tells other mice, especially male mice, to stay away and also increases their stress hormones. And one of these chemicals, N-pental acetate, is released in the urine of the uh, mama mice, and it's, it's really stressful for males. It's also the chemical responsible for giving bananas their unique smell. On a side note, this is why when people are like, oh, look at this chemical that's in a thing, it's bad. It's like, well, not not necessarily always just because it has a scary name. Like, yeah, you can find this in, you know, mice urine, but you can also find it in bananas. So sometimes when certain people who think chemical names are scary are trying to scare you, they'll say things like, oh, look at this. This dye has this thing in it that is found in mice urine. Ah, this thing has mice urine in it. Uh, but it's also found in bananas, and it's more likely that they are getting it either um, directly from a lab or from bananas than from the urine of pregnant mice. But yeah, so anyway, uh, because of this, uh, male mice are really stressed out around bananas and very afraid of bananas. Uh, so don't put bananas in your mouse traps, which I have tried before. Oof. Um, but, and also, um, yeah, just an interesting fun fact for y'all. So, all right, that brings us to animal, animal, animal holidays, animal, animal, animal holidays.
All right, so uh, it's time for Animal Holidays, and we don't really have a ton this week. Uh, it's still June for the, the whole week, and so um, Zoo and Aquarium Month, Our World Oceans Month, and Orca Month is still going strong. Wait a minute. What if that huge pod of orcas were just getting together to celebrate their month? They probably listened to Zoo News and found out that it was there. Okay, I'm going to stop now. But anyway, and also until the 26th, we are in the midst of both Pollinator Week and Insect Week. And then for our individual days on Friday, June 24th, it's National Take Your Dog to Work Day. And on June 25th, it's National Catfish Day. And that's it until July, y'all. So there you have it, folks. Another week of Rasafari Zoo News is in the books, or more accurately, in a podcast feed. I'd like to say thanks to Laura Shank, my Red Panda-level patron, and also to the people who contributed stories this week. Anya Keen, Colleen Lenahan, Kim Cooley, Ken Tryon, not Tyrion, as I've said before. Sorry about that. I like Game of Thrones. Ren Howell, and a snow leopard runner on Instagram. So thank you all for contributing. And hey, I've got a special treat coming for you with Tuesday's episode. It occurred to me that because of the author interviews and some aquarium things, I actually haven't done an episode from a zoo in like a month. I mean, we've done a sanctuary. We've done stuff. It's all been very good. I know you're enjoying it. But uh, we are going to move forward an interview that I'm really excited to share with y'all. I don't want to give away too much, but it is an actual zoo episode again. So that'll be fun getting back to the roots. And uh, until then, remember, friends, the word newsy credits backwards is Stiderk Yeswen. The Ross Safari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.